All right, good morning and welcome. If you're here for the first time, thanks for joining us. If you're here for the baptism or if you came for some other reason, great to have you here this morning. My name is Old Man Mark. I write the midweek musings, and you are definitely going to want to see this week's profile of Gary and his other brother, Gary. We're going to get them both highlighted in there. It's going to be something special. Actually, I shouldn't promise what I can't deliver. So there'll be something in midweek musing this week. Thanks for the plug amidst the other comments, Gary. It's too late. <laughs> I've got the microphone and the pen. <laughs> I'll be back. Um, we are in a series in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And we come this morning to chapter 11. I had initially thought to do this in one message. I realized it was just uh, too much to cover in one message. So we're going to do it in two weeks. So this morning we're going to uh, look at the first uh, half of the chapter, verses 1 through 16, and then next week, uh, verses 17 through 24. So I'm going to read the first 16 verses, and then we're going to pray. And even before I read these, I was just thinking, and as I was um, preparing um, this morning, just what a special moment this is in our lives and in the week to be able to gather. Where, where else do we have this opportunity to gather together as the people of God and hear God speak to us through his word? So these words that I'm about to read, I didn't write these. I didn't make these up. These are special words. These are living words. This is the voice of the creator God, the living God, the saving God speaking to us. So Romans chapter 11 beginning in verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, They've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who've not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask then, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. 
Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Let's pray. O oh God, our Father, as we quiet our hearts in this moment, we confess, we acknowledge that we live in a sea of trivialities, of urgent but unimportant things. We live in the midst of cares and riches and pleasures of this life that wage war against the kingdom of Christ in our hearts. We humble ourselves this morning. We humble ourselves before you right now and we acknowledge that we need you. We Confess how quickly we are distracted from the most important things, from eternal things. We commit ourselves in this moment freshly to seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. This is why we have gathered here this morning. We acknowledge our weakness, our waywardness, our need, and we acknowledge your greatness. You are very great. You are the living God, the saving God, the rescuing God, and you are here with us. By your grace, we have become your people. Fill us with your spirit. Draw near to us now. Open darkened eyes. Strengthen the weak. Gather the wayward. Encourage the faint-hearted. Convert and save the lost, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why are we here? Not so much here at this meeting, but why are we here on earth? What's our purpose? What are we living for? You know, I was thinking about this meeting. I was working on this message, thinking about Sunday mornings, and I was thinking, you know, church should be about the most important things of life, shouldn't it? If people want tips for how to have a more successful life, you've got lots of places you can go for that. If people want entertainment, lots of options for that. But who will talk to us about what makes life worth living, about ultimate things, about how to live well, about how to die well, but how to know God. We gather on Sundays to hear God speak to us through his word. Why are we here? We are here to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We are here to be a community that exalts and displays and declares the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. And so every week we look into our Bibles to learn more about God's great plan, about God's unstoppable plan of salvation so that we can know this great God and make this great God known in our city, in our world. Now this morning, 
we turn to one of the most difficult passages in Scripture, Romans chapter 11. This is truly some deep water. Do you know, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, who wrote some letters in the New Testament, he had access to Paul's letters. I don't know if he was referring to Romans in 2 Peter 2, verses, uh, verse 16 in chapter 3. He says, some of the things that our brother Paul writes... He says they're hard to understand. Now, I don't know if he had this passage in mind, but this is a passage that's hard to understand. We're going to take this passage, as I said, in in two bites, verses 1 to 16 today and verses 17 to 36 next week. Now, don't miss next week. The end of Romans 11 is the end of the first half first portion of the book. It's the climax of the first 11 chapters about how God's transforming grace changes lives like ours and reaches around the world to bring about the obedience of faith for the glory of God. And that, that chapter 11 that, that we're jumping into this morning culminates this first part of the book with this explosion of praise. So we want to We want to feast on what's there, and then we want to end with a loud time of singing next Sunday. Here we are in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And the the summary of these chapters is this. God's brought his long-promised Messiah into the world. Jesus Christ has come. Many people have begun following him. But those who were most likely to follow him, the Jewish people, have largely rejected him. Now what? That's the, that's the setup for these chapters. Will God reject his people if they're rejecting his Messiah? The short answer is no. God won't reject his people. He hasn't rejected his people. Israel's unbelief is neither total nor final. That's what Chapter 11 is really about Israel's unbelief is neither total nor final. And so there's a lot going on in this, in this chapter, in this, in this passage. And so what I want to do is I, I want to tell the story just in a little different way than I usually do. I want to use an illustration just with three words. And I'm going to just work with this illustration to try to get these concepts across as, as we go through this passage. So here's the story of the passage. I'm going to walk through this in several steps, working with this illustration. And then I'm going to end by giving just two ways that this passage exalts God. I want us to get our our attention on God. I want God to be magnified, increased, glorified in our hearts and minds by the end of the message. So here's, here's the setup for this. We need to understand God's plan for the world. God's plan for the world is salvation to the nations, through Israel. God, the, 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 the storyline of the Bible, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's, it's, it's a big book, million or so words, 66 individual books in this anthology, but it tells a very simple story. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. It was a paradise. It was perfect, and he put people there. He said, it's all yours. Enjoy it. There's this one tree that I don't want you to eat from. And so our first parents, Adam and Eve, enjoyed that paradise in that garden, but eventually they trespassed. They crossed that line and they ate from that tree. And when they did that, they introduced all that's broken and wrong into the world. That's how it came. 
All that you experience in your life today, personally, all that you see systemically, internationally, all that's wrong and broken comes from people trespassing against God's law and deciding that they knew better than God how to live. Now, what happens next? Well, God could have said, that was a failed experiment. I'm going to write these people off, destroy them as they deserve, and go on and do something else. But he didn't. He said, I want to save people. I want a people that will know me, that I will be their God, and they will be my people. And so he begins this rescue plan, and he brings it about starting with one guy, Abraham and his wife, Sarah. He calls this couple to come and follow him and to be his. And then he promises that through them, they're going to be descendants like the star of the sky, like the sand on the seashore. And so those descendants, Abraham and Sarah, have a son named Isaac. And then Isaac and Rebekah have a son uh, named Jacob, who's renamed Israel. And through Israel and the nation that takes on his name, God's intention is to bring blessing to all the nations of the world. That's the plan. That's how it's supposed to work. And so the culmination of that saving plan is that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the second person in the Trinity, comes to earth. He comes to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death. And as he does that, he makes a way for lost people, for unrighteous people, for people who are outsiders with God to be reconciled, to be brought in, to be right with God. How? Not through law. Not through works, not through self-improvement. No, through faith in what Christ has done. And so as, as Jesus completes his ministry, ascends to heaven and the Holy Spirit is poured out, many people come to faith in Christ. And initially there are Jewish people coming to faith. But over time, huge numbers of people turn to Jesus, but very few Jewish people do. That's the setup for Romans 9, 10, and 11. So what's going to happen now? If God's people, covenant people of Israel, are choosing to reject God's Messiah and plan of salvation, will God reject those people? And look at the diagram. If the people of God don't follow God, will the nations ever hear about God and have a way to be reconciled to God? This is a... This is a a dangerous spot for the nations and for God's plan. Here's the situation. We saw this at the end of chapter 10. Of Israel, God says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Okay, so if, if Israel refuses God's plan of salvation and God's plan is to go through Israel, what happens to the plan? Think about a factory. All the employees go out on strike. Now what happens? Will the owner reject them? Will he fire them all? Will the assembly line shut down so that there's nothing produced? What does God do when his people stubbornly reject him? Well, the first thing that we find out in this chapter is that not all Israel has rejected God. There is a remnant there's a remnant in Israel. Has God rejected his people? Have his people fallen totally in, into unbelief? Paul says, no, there's a remnant. And he points to two evidences of that. Did you see those as we went through the chapter? What are the evidences that there are believing Jewish people? Well, the first one is Paul. He says, hey, what about me? I'm an Israelite, remember? I'm descended from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a descendant of Abraham. So he says there's at least one 
There's a remnant. And then he reminds them of a story, the story of Elijah. Elijah was one of the great prophets in the Old Testament. And Elijah ministered at a time when there was great evil amongst God's people. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were two of the ungodliest, most brutal, murderous, idolatrous leaders ever in Israel's history. And it was Elijah's job to remind them of how wayward they were and to call them and the nation back to faith in Christ. And there's this great showdown in 1 Kings 18 where Elijah and the prophets of Baal, they have this this power encounter, this showdown. There's 450 of these prophets and one prophet of God, Elijah. Elijah wants the people of Israel to see who the one true God is. It's not Baal, it's Yahweh. And so he says, okay, we're both going to prepare sacrifices here on this mountain and we're going to call down fire. And whoever has their sacrifice consumed, that'll prove who the real God is. And these 450 prophets of Baal, they prepare their sacrifice. They yell and shout and cut themselves, do all kinds of things. Nothing happens. One guy, Elijah, he says, here's, here's my sacrifice. He's got his ox up there, cut up on the altar. And he says, pour water on it. Do it again. Do it again. There's not going to be any trickery here. Do it again until there's standing water underneath it. And then he calls out, oh God, let this people know that you and you alone are God. And fire comes and consumes the offering. And Elijah goes off and kills all these prophets of Baal. And then you know what happens next? He finds out that Queen Jezebel has vowed to kill him. And he runs off into the wilderness and falls into a dark depression. And he says, Lord, I'm the only one left. And God comes to him and he says, you know, I've kept for myself 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee. And Paul is reminding that there's always a remnant. You know what a, you know what a remnant is? It snowed last week, right? There's all the snow all over the place. Most of it's gone, but there's a little bit out there right now. You know what's out there? There's a remnant of snow. There's just a little bit left. And God is saying, that's what it's like. There's always been a remnant. There's always been this believing part of Israel, chosen by grace. I wonder this morning, sitting here, if you might feel a little bit like Elijah this morning. I wonder if there's anyone who feels like you're the only one. Maybe you're the only one at work or in your family in your class, on your team. You know, in these moments, we can fall into discouragement, darkness, feeling like we're the only one. We lose perspective in these moments. Elijah lost perspective on who God is and God's saving power. And if you find yourself in that place this morning, I just, I just want to urge you, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. I want to remind you this morning, you're not alone. I want to remind you this morning, there's always a remnant chosen by grace. And I want to remind you that God is mighty to save. Story's not over yet. So what's going to happen? We got this remnant. There's a few believing Israelites, as there always have been. I want you to look at verse 11. That's a verse to put an asterisk by, underline, highlight. What's going to happen now? Paul says, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather, now this is a vital, critical phrase. Listen to this phrase. 
Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Listen to that phrase. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. I want you to think about that with me. What's a trespass? You know what a no trespassing sign is, right? Don't go here. Don't cross this line. So trespassing is, is sinning by crossing lines that God says not to cross. So what happens when Israel trespasses by trying to save themselves, by looking for a righteousness from their own works and lives rather than a righteousness that comes by faith in Christ? What happens in their rejection of the Messiah and their trespassing of the only way to God, what happens next? What happens next really should startle us. What happens next is salvation comes to the Gentiles anyway. Really? How does that work? Somehow, think about this. Their failure brings God's saving power to the nations. That wasn't how the plan was laid out. But somehow God's saving power is even greater than the failure of his people. In the message, Eugene Peterson says it this way, they walked out and left the door open and outsiders walked in. In the book of Acts, we see this happening over and over and over. Acts chapter 13 gives us one illustration of how this works. Paul and Barnabas go into this city in the Russian province of of Asia called Pisidian Antioch, and they begin to preach as they typically do. Do you know the first place they would go? They would go to the synagogue, go to God's people, and they'd start preaching about Jesus. And they went in the first Saturday, the first Sabbath, they, they were there, and they got this tremendous reception. People loved what they had to say and said, come back next week. And so they do. And so many people heard about what was happening that the synagogue was packed the next week with people wanting to hear. But it wasn't just Jewish people that wanted to hear. It was all the Gentiles in the city too. And then something strange happens. It says the Jewish people were filled with jealousy. They didn't like all these other people around. And so they reviled Paul and Barnabas. They kicked them out. We don't want anything to do with you. And so Paul says this. He says to the Jewish people, his own people, he says, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And so they turn around and they begin to share the gospel with the Gentiles. And it says the Gentiles rejoiced and many believed and the word spread. Now, this word Gentiles that I'm using in the Greek, it's this word ethne. It means nations. In the Bible, there's sort of two races of people. You've got the Jewish people and everybody else. The Gentiles is the everybody else. And so he and Barnabas begin to bring the good news of the Messiah to the everybody else, to the nations. And many believe and the word spreads. And do you know what happened? The word spread. And those people told more people. And those people told more people. And the word spread, and it got all the way to the capital city of the Roman Empire, to Rome. And we're reading about a church that's there. And then it spread from there, and it spread through the ages. And in an unbroken chain, it spread all the way to 5200 Ox Road. That Jews and Gentiles might hear about the Messiah. And so God's saving power 
spreads even though the people closest to him have resisted it. Lydia asked this morning, she, said, she didn't know what, it, what does it look like to believe? Maybe you're here this morning wondering, what does it look like to believe? What does it look like to receive this salvation? Well, it's, it's focused on Jesus Christ. We saw back in chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, to call Jesus Lord means you bow your knee before him and you say, I'm a creation and you're the creator. You're the boss. You're in charge. I belong to you. I was made for you. I turn away from being the king and ruler of my own life. And I submit my life. I give my life to you. It's confessing that Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He's a real person, a risen king and Messiah. And if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart these things, you will be saved. Come to him if you haven't. But what about God's people? What about Israel, the the time of the writing, and still today largely continue to reject the Messiah? Should have listened to verse 11 again. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That was the first phrase that we need to remember. The second is just as important. So as to make Israel jealous. So as to make Israel jealous. Look what happens. As the nations begin to come to faith in Jesus Christ, it affects Jewish people. That's what That's what the Holy Spirit is telling us here. The idea here is that as as Israel sees the nations enjoying their God, it stirs something inside of them. It arouses something inside of them. You know, jealousy isn't always bad. Jealousy is desiring something that somebody else has. Now, you may desire that in a sinful way, or you may desire something good in a good way. In fact, we're told throughout Scripture that God is a jealous God. He's jealous for the hearts of people that they might do what they're supposed to do and worship and serve him and be his people and he be their God. So jealousy isn't always bad. And so God is jealous for Israel's affections and Israel begins to see what God is doing in the lives of others. And as we heard Randy Newman share last week, often Jewish people come to faith through seeing non-Jewish people who know their God. This is actually what Randy writes Uh, He touched on this story. If you were here last Sunday, he talked about this moment when he realized that that this religion that he he was trying to follow was filled with so many rules he could never keep them all. And so then he he got to know some Christians, he says. And in his book, Engaging with Jewish People, he says, these people were different than me because they talked about having a personal relationship with God. They were different than most everyone I knew in that they talked about about God and to God in a way that I found tremendously attractive. Do you hear what he said? They don't just know things about God. They know God. They know this God. They're talking to this God. And he, found, he says, I found that attractive. He says, I couldn't articulate it at the time, but I was jealous that these goyim, a not-so-positive term for Gentiles, knew my Jewish God better than I did. He says, I was jealous that they knew my God better than I did. And so God begins to work in this covenant people that he has, Israel, that he still loves, and he's stirring up envy and jealousy in them to draw them 
to himself through what they see in the Gentile people around them. Can you see what God is saying here? Listen, the way Christians live can be incredibly attractive to lost and broken people. Gospel-shaped lives can stir desire in others to, to have what they see in those lives. A gospel-shaped community can stir desire in others to look at those relationships and say, how do I get that? Outsiders can look at the lives of believers and see peace in the midst of storms, see joy in the midst of stress, or see kindness in the midst of anger and hostility, or see hope for the future, a hope that's not based on how much money you have, your health, not based on how successful you are. And that can, that can draw people to say, what's behind this? How are these people like this? What makes you this way? Do you know the church can be the aroma of Christ in a stinky neighborhood? It can be the only thing that smells good. It's attractive. So are we living the kinds of lives that can make outsiders jealous to know God the way we know him. Lives lived in relationship with this great and gracious and holy and saving God. And are we opening up our lives and our community to unbelievers so that they can get close enough to us to smell the aroma of Christ, to see the fruit of the Spirit. Hey, there's nobody perfect here. You don't have to be perfect to qualify for this. This isn't a perfect church, and this isn't a call to Christian perfection. In fact, you know, when people see weakness that finds hope outside of itself, that can be tremendously attractive because nobody has the resources that they really need to live the life they know they're supposed to live. Nobody has those resources. They need to see people who know how to find that help in Christ. And you have that. What a wonderful witness and testimony just by living your life. So there's this attraction. The Gentiles make Israel jealous. And there's actually one more step in the story. It's kind of remarkable. As Jewish people then turn to call on the Lord, they begin to occupy the place God always intended for them to occupy. And the blessing of God that comes to them as they embrace the Messiah and walk with God, then in turn brings greater blessing to the nations. That's what it says. Look, if their trespass means riches for the world, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, what does this look like? I, I don't know. I'm not quite sure. But I'd love to find out. I hope I get to see this. I, I think we see here, and we'll see more of this in the latter part of the chapter, God is not done 
with his people Israel. And I believe before Jesus Christ returns, there will be a vast turning of huge numbers of Jewish people to faith in the Messiah. It may happen suddenly. It may happen gradually and increasingly. I don't know. But I, I know there's this expectation of full inclusion, whatever that means, of this wide turning to the Lord. And this raises for us, you, you may be having questions in your mind, well, all this talk about Israel, how do Israel and the church relate? And has the church replaced Israel? And how do we think about that nation over there called Israel in the Middle East? And so we'll, we'll touch on some of those things next week as we look at this picture of this tree. As we see clearly, the Jew and Gentile are all part of the one people of God. But this morning, we started with a question. Has God rejected his people? And the answer is no way. No way. Now, Israel's unbelief is neither total, there's a remnant, nor final. There's going to be a great turning. So let me just close this morning drawing our attention back to God. Two ways that this passage highlights and exalts God. First, just simply this. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. You know, if, if God were unfaithful to his word, the universe would be in big trouble, wouldn't it? He's holding the universe together by the word of his power. It's causing the sun to rise at precisely the right time because he is faithful to his word. God always keeps his promises. Are you wavering and wondering about the truthfulness, the trustworthiness of the word? The salvation that's come to people here and now is evidence that God always keeps his word. God's word is everything God is. It's unchanging. It's all-powerful. It's completely faithful. It's utterly reliable. It's without flaw. It never needs to be revised. It never needs to be edited. It will never be retracted. No apology will ever be made for it by the author. God always keeps his promises. So read his word. Learn his promises. Build your life on these things. What a great God. It doesn't take much self-reflection for any of us to remember moments of unfaithfulness, promise-breaking, maybe trying our best but just not being able to do what we'd hoped to do. Do you know God has never once had that experience, ever. He always accomplishes what he sets out to do, and he always keeps his promises. Go to the bank on that one. Second, God's saving power is 
awesome. Can, can you just, just call time out with me for a moment and let's just think about what we're, we're seeing here. God's saving power. If you've been in church for a while, if you've been following the Lord for a while, if you become familiar with Scripture, we can, we can grow dull of hearing. I can. We need to hear and see these things as though seeing them for the first time. Through their trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Do you get that? The plan goes completely haywire. Israel, the key component to bring the blessing to the nations, rejects their role. What happens? Salvation comes anyway. What kind of a person can do this? When your plans fall apart, do you say, oh, this is great I know I can press my way through this and everything's going to work out fine. I don't think like that. When my plans fall apart, I get angry, I get depressed, I get discouraged, I get worried. God just does what he says he's going to do anyway. Listen, when Joseph, one of those patriarchs, when his brothers sold him into slavery, what happened? They intended evil to come out of that. They hated him. They were mad and they didn't like his dreams. Did it stop God's plan? No. Their trespass had no power to stop God's plan. Salvation came to that family anyway. And Joseph knew this about God. He said, as for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph knew this God who was able to take trespass and turn it around for good. Do you know God this way? Do you know this kind of God? Because if you do, oh, you'll be filled with joy and hope and confidence. Do you know what happened at the cross? Do you know what happened at the cross? Evil men crucified an innocent man. Do you know what happened at the cross? God's foreordained plan was perfectly fulfilled. Do you know what happened at the cross? God took trespass and he turned it into salvation. How great is that? Who is like our God? There's no one like our God. It's good to just stop. Oh, God saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We need to just stop sometimes and ponder this and consider this and thank God for what he's done and give praise to him. What a great, mighty, saving God we serve. thought it would be good for us to sing one more song this morning. So we're going to close. Uh, Matt and whoever else is coming up, come on up. We're going to close by singing, All I Have is Christ. Would you stand with me, please? Close next week with these verses, but I'm going to read them as we're getting ready to sing from the end of chapter Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God 
How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the who has known the mind of the Lord? Who knows this God who can turn trespass into salvation? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's sing. <laughs>